0: Our Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to be together and to to gather as your people. How glorious it is that every Lord's Day we can leave the cares of the world behind. And we can enjoy, not because of a law, but because of a principle. We can enjoy somewhat of a Christian Sabbath. That we can set aside this time, Lord, to worship you, to think on you, to gather with your people to trust in you, that we're not we're not working for our money today, Lord. We're we are just doing the things that are they're that heavenly. And I pray that would be a comfort to us. I pray that that would be a joy to us today. I pray that you would impact all of our hearts with the truths of your word today. I pray, Lord, that it would make its way into the way we walk with you, into our lives, into our behavior, into our words, into our th- very thoughts. And I pray that this morning as we look through the book of revelation we pray lord that that would begin that process of continuing to sanctify us to make us more and more like christ and that is our goal that is our hope we pray lord that we as a as a church body would be faithful to you that we would be humble that we would be obedient and that you would see fit to use us in the same way that you use some of the great churches of the past lord and, and in revelation in particular we we think of the church at smyrna and the church at philadelphia Great churches that suffered for you, that lifted up your name to the lost. And we pray we would follow in their footsteps, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So this morning, um, during my own time with the Lord, I decided to do something unusual before teaching this morning. I, I read the whole book of Revelation. And, and the reason is is because it says blessed is he who reads and so I wanted to be blessed and it, it only takes 30 minutes if you read at a reasonable pace and it's really glorious to get the whole picture and, and it's it's my favorite book in the New Testament and so it's not a it's not a sacrifice I mean, there are all of you if you haven't done that recently read the whole thing in one sitting it reads much more like a story it's a little less confusing and I, I think you'll get more of the gist of it that you're you're not necessarily trying to understand every detail you're you're getting the flavor of both um, excitement and warning. Or as uh, one commentator said, Revelation gives you both thrills and chills. And I think that's a good way of of looking at it. So we're going to walk through it today and and won't take just a ton of time on it. I would not call this the most complex book in the New Testament. Um, I would put that in, I I would probably put the book of Hebrews as the most complex, most difficult to understand. Um, But Revelation is certainly up there. And before we really get started, I want to caution against a stance on Revelation that just says, well, we can't understand it and so we just won't worry about it. There's a lot that's difficult to understand in Revelation, and we understand that and get that. But the Word of God is here for us. We're we're promised twice. It's the only book in the Bible that at the very beginning and at the very end promises you a blessing for reading through it. And interestingly, it promises a blessing for reading it aloud as well. Um, So I was tempted to do that today, but I know you want to know some of the details, so we won't do that. But the best way to understand Revelation is to understand it the way you would any other book. You don't use a different system for interpreting. You don't suddenly uh, shift to all allegory and that sort of thing. We'll we'll, uh, look at that here shortly. So let's get into some of the nitty-gritty here. Um, The author is the Apostle John that has never really been questioned by uh, anybody since the days of the early church. He's called a prophet in Verse 3, is called a prophet in the end of uh, chapter 22, and so he is functioning as a prophet, receiving the word of God to, to give to us. We know from chapter 1, verse 9, that he's been exiled on the island of uh, Patmos. He's a brother and a fellow sufferer, verse 9 also. And um, interestingly, um, it says here in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's Sunday, and that's why we call Sunday the Lord's Day. Um, That's what the New Testament calls it. And so that's one of our major precedents for worshiping on Sundays. Um, That's the day that that Christ chose to appear to the Apostle John and to give him this revelation. It wasn't just because it was his day off. It wasn't just because things were slow that day. It was the Lord's Day. What's the date? Pretty much... There is total consensus, except among preterists, which we'll get to that in a little bit, um, that this was written between 90 and 95 AD. It is clearly the last book of the Bible written. And in fact, the, the end of Revelation gives a warning, don't add to this book. And, and there's, a, there's a big debate about, well, does that mean don't add to the book of Revelation or don't add to the Bible? It doesn't matter, right? That's like, uh, that's like uh, when you tell a little kid, don't drink all the milk. Well, do you mean all the milk in this fridge or all the milk in both fridges? Don't drink all the milk. And so, uh, it's clearly the last book written. Um, the dates are very well established. It's one of the New Testament books that we can establish the date within three or four years, getting very close to it. This is during the reign of Domitian. This is during the most intense time of persecution. Now, if you, have, if you would ever sit down... And just do a scan through all of the New Testament epistles. What you would find is beginning of the book of Hebrews, the New Testament begins to ramp up or crescendo, challenging all believers to endure persecution from the outside and to beware of false teachers on the inside. And that just goes higher and higher. And the book of Revelation really is the pinnacle of that warning. In the book of Revelation, one of the major lessons is that the true believer will endure to the end. This is a challenge. An unbeliever reading the book of Revelation sees that to follow Christ is costly. That to follow Christ can cost you your life. It can cost you your your freedom. And the believer reading the book of Revelation is reminded that to follow Christ is costly. That we have a faith that costs. Not to achieve salvation, but because we have salvation. And so it's, it's very sobering and, and in a good way. We would also say that this has to be the last book because it picks up right where Jude leaves off. And Let me read the end of Jude and then go right into Revelation and you'll see this. <clears throat> the end of Jude in this glorious... Um, Doxology, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave John, who bore witness witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw it just flows right into it 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 really Jude almost serves as an introduction to revelation and so um, we're very confident of its place in history we're confident of its place in the canon as being the final book of the Bible now what's the situation in the book this is written to second generation churches and if you kind of do the math here Right after the ascension of Christ into heaven, call it in the 30s AD, um, you have the first generation of the church. First generation of the church was essentially only in Jerusalem. But then there was a, a persecution that arose after the uh, death of Stephen. And what happened to most of the Christians? They, they fled. They scattered. And that was God's way of taking the gospel farther out. Do you remember what the book of Acts says? Um, that the gospel would be taken to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that's exactly what happened. In fact, that's kind of a, an outline of the book of Acts. So you have this first generation, these first generation churches in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Put it that way. And and they begin to have children. They are they are making converts. The gospel is spreading like wildfire. And then you have the second generation. Call it in the in the sixties, seventies, eighties, and into the nineties. Um, if you've read any church history, you you would even know this. That great churches tend to have a. 30 to 50 year run. They have, uh, they have s- pi- uh, peaks and valleys. And so this, this is kind of putting us near the end of the second generation where it's reasonable... For the Lord to expect churches to be mature and solid, uh, which is a good precedent, I think for us here that um, you know i 've known pastors that have told me they, they feel like their church is just stuck in the period of not growing, and, and that 's a whole other issue but Churches, local churches, according to Revelation 2 and 3, are expected to grow and grow and grow in terms of their depth, their spiritual maturity, one generation passing that on to the next. It it shouldn't be that a church peaks and suddenly gets blown apart and then has to start over again with sound doctrine and sound theology, but that's primarily been church history. And as you've looked at Revelation 2 and 3, you see... These are churches that Jesus Christ expected to remember what they learned 30, 40, and 50 years ago. So there's there's an onus of responsibility on us to pass on um, uh, sound doctrine, pass on our faith in a way that that the church continues to have uh, an impact this is why I'm not a big fan of of pastors moving on from churches every five to seven years because that's the average in America now um, because they just they just blew apart the chance for a church to really continue in their growth and continue in their uh, in their sanctification together and so the challenges that these second generation churches are, are facing exactly what beginning with the book of Hebrews, tells us, all through the end of the New Testament, challenges from the outside, and that is persecution, and challenges from the inside, and that is heresy. And as you have looked at the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you notice that the major problem for them is not so much the persecution on the outside. In fact, even some of the churches that Jesus condemns were at least faithful against persecution from the outside, faithful from influences from the outside. What they weren't faithful to was what was happening on the inside, allowing sin, allowing uh, waywardness in theology and in doctrine um, in the name of acceptance, Uh, all the way to the church at Laodicea that says, they were rich but they were poor um, so that's, those are their challenges and the book of Revelation addresses those challenges I, I think every church member every church leader ought to read through the book of Revelation once or twice a year because it's just a it is an absolute reality check as to what's important. You know, I just sent a giant email to one of the elders telling them that I'm I'm sick of the color of the carpet in the children's church uh, uh, wing. And you read Revelation? Oh, I wish I could unsend that because who cares? It doesn't matter. So what does the book emphasize? Let's do some of the historical and theological themes. The glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something that I don't know if you've thought about it this way. The Gospels reveal Christ. They do not reveal Christ in all of His glory. You have little glimpses. You have the Mount of Transfiguration. You have the Ascension, which must have been so cool to see. But the, the book of Revelation is where the glorified Christ is really outlined. And he's described in chapter 1 in intense detail. And so the glory of Jesus Christ. And in fact he has three titles that are new. That are never used of him until the book of Revelation. You have uh, the faithful witness. Chapter 1 verse 5. This is speaking of his time on earth. That every word that he said was true. He could not be called the faithful witness until he had proven that he is the faithful witness. So he's not called the faithful witness until after his ascension. That every single word he spoke was true. Every single word was what his father told him to say. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Chapter 5, verse 5. This echoes the Genesis 49 prophecy by Jacob concerning his son Judah. And this is the son from whom Jesus was descended. Why is he not called the Lion of the tribe of Judah in the Gospels? Well, because he didn't come to rule and reign initially in power. Lions come to rule and reign. And so now that part of his ministry is at the forefront... And of course, one of our favorites—he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is never used of Christ until the Book of Revelation. This is a, the first time it's used of Him. Now, interestingly, it's it's used in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, there's a there's a. Um, a a variation, King of Kings and God of Gods used of God, and the same title being used of Jesus King of Kings, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods is also a testament to his deity then his title most used in the book of Revelation is the Lamb I, I think the book of Revelation is extremely evangelistic I have no problem asking unbelievers to read the book of Revelation because it it has the effect of either making them run from Christ or run to Christ. He's is called the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, and this is a key theme in Revelation 28 times. Revelation never lets you forget that the one who will rule in majesty is the one that was slain, the one who died. He's the conquering Lamb, and isn't that an odd, uh, an odd mixture? If you've ever had, I'm not a huge fan of children's Bibles. I know they're sort of a necessary evil, um, but. I remember having a children's Bible as a child that had a picture of a lamb with a sword. And that was so confusing to me because it didn't explain anything. He is the conqueror, king of kings, lord of lords. He is the lamb, um, which is purely symbolic, obviously, as, as the living sacrifice. So you have the glory of Jesus Christ. If you want to be reminded of just how glorious Christ is, Revelation is the place to start. You have the theme of the wrath of God. And that's probably the, the one you think of in Revelation most. That's why we listed the glory of Jesus Christ first. The wrath of God is, is spoken of directly in chapter 6, 11, 14, 15, 16, and 19, indirectly in many other places. And I think this is a good time to make a distinction. One of the reasons that um, we're of the persuasion here that the church of Jesus Christ in the current age um, will not be on the earth during all the the pouring out of the wrath of God um, is simply that that has been God's pattern throughout scripture. And it's important to make a distinction between wrath and persecution. And those are those are two major distinctions. Um, can anybody think of other times in the Bible where God pulled believers out of a situation before his wrath was poured out? Throw, Sodom Gomorrah, Noah Nineveh. Nineveh Jericho, yeah, not too many there yeah, that's been his pattern, right? I think it's a it's a theological error, and it shows theological um, oversimplicity to try to equate all Christian suffering with. Uh, conflating or mixing up wrath and persecution. They're they're very, very different. Now, uh, the question will be, well, what about all the believers who have come to faith during the Great Tribulation? I I could make the case, um, and I'm not going to go to the stake on this, but I think we could make the case that not one of them will die because of the wrath of God. They will die because of the wrath of Antichrist. They will die because of persecution. Um, But you know what? If I'm a believer and I happen to step under one of the 100-pound hailstones that God's sending down, I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. Because God kills believers and it's a mercy and it's a kindness, isn't it? So so we're fine with that. So that's not something, if somebody says, well, that's a huge problem. Not for me. I don't know. The suffering going through there, I see a hailstone coming. I might step under it just to be done with this. <clears throat> oh, didn't see that coming. <laughs> Revelation is meant to terrify the reader. It is meant to remind the reader that we serve a God who is holy, who is righteous. And I was reminded of this um, recently, thinking about this. Uh, I was listening to a discussion about the death penalty. And how cruel the death penalty is. And then, then of course, turned to um, the fact that God in the Old Testament seems cruel because there's 19 different ways that you can receive the death penalty. You can receive the death penalty for homosexuality in the Old Testament, the death penalty for striking your parent, the death penalty for cursing your parents. There would be no teenagers left if we kept with that now. And they'd say, well, how cruel is that? No, the Old Testament is an example of the grace of God in that there were only 19 reasons to receive the death penalty. What was the original law? The original law to Adam and Eve, if you sin once, you shall surely die. The original death penalty is death to all who sin, for any sin, even one. So, 19 reasons in the Old Testament uh, is, is pretty tame. And so we're reminded in the book of Revelation that the holy God of the Old Testament that I just read this morning about uh, in 1 Samuel about God sending uh, Saul and commanding him to wipe out the Amalekites including the women and the children. And people say, well why would God kill innocent people? Do you you hear the problem in that? There are no innocent people. And God is holy. Every person is born condemned. And so so God is holy. And and when when you say wrongly that, well, the God of the Old Testament was the cruel God and he uh, he kind of slowed it down and mellowed out in the New Testament, well, then you haven't read Revelation. Because Revelation makes everything in the Old Testament pale by comparison. I mean, really, Revelation is the wrath of God in a way that is probably clearer than any other part of the Bible. It's, it's overwhelming. It is, it's to the point of, of wiping out basically the whole world. Jesus even said that this time is only going to last seven years because if it went longer, nobody would survive. That's how rich and deep the wrath of God is. So it's important to to understand that. We are to stand in awe of a holy God who is perfectly righteous in His white-hot anger against sin. And then you have the future work of God. This is one of the exciting parts of Revelation. You have the judgment of the earth, chapters 6 through 19. You have the establishment of His kingdom, chapters 19 through 20, and the blessing of His people. And and this is kind of bookends. You have uh, chapters 2 and 3, during the church age and then chapters 19 through 22, uh, the blessing of his people. Particularly chapters 21 and 22. Now from a, a literary standpoint, Revelation is multifaceted. And it would fall into several categories, several genres of biblical literature. It's really uh, uh, very unique. It would f- fall, first of all, into the genre of apocalypse, um, and that's what the word revelation means, uh, or it's, it's, it's derived from the Greek word that we get apocalypse. It's a revealing. It is the revealing of things that can't possibly be known, um, that can't possibly be figured out. Nobody, nobody, uh, people who say the book of uh, the that the Bible. is is somehow a book that men wrote without God's help. No, they they didn't. This is impossible. There's no way any of this could be written just by men. You have Jesus' message to the seven churches and the, the, the warning under the apocalypse heading is that false believers in the churches must repent or they will go through the great tribulation. Now, what I love is, and people have difficulty with the timing, and we're, we're not supposed to have difficulty with the timing because we're not told anything about the timing. What is the next prophetic event to happen? It is the rapture of the church, and there are no uh, events to tell us that it's coming, despite the efforts of kind of um, hyper-dispensationalists who want to show, see, the war between Russia and Ukraine is actually uh, in Revelation 19. no. The believers in Ephesus and in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, the book of Revelation is written in such a way to make them believe that the, the great tribulation could begin any day. And that's how we ought to live. And, and for in my mind, it's a ticking time bomb. And if it's 2,000 years later, um, that fuse is really, really short now, isn't it? So it's written in such a way that the false believers in the church and, and he addresses those in five of the seven churches they're to be terrified. I don't want to go through this. I need to come to faith in Christ. That you're either to be an overcomer those who are repentant or as a non-overcomer you will suffer. And the book of Revelation forces a choice. Will you bow to this truth or not? And in fact the very end of the book is a, is a gospel plea And I want to just read it to you because it is very, very evangelistic. The Lord Jesus says in twenty-two, twelve, "Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. The render every man according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the authority to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for." the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, and and here it is, here's the gospel plea, and the spirit and the bride, that is the whole church say come, and let the one who hears say come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost that is a gospel plea and that's what the book of Revelation is meant to to lead you to, it is a, a tremendously Uh, overt plea for the gospel. That's the point of this book is that it reveals what you are in for if you don't believe. Then we would also put it in the genre of prophecy. It's the word of God that gives insight and encouragement to the present generation. And and I I think this is a misnomer that prophecy is just all about foretelling the future. Uh, The genre of prophecy is specific to speaking about the present also about the future in a way that impacts your behavior in the present that that's the point of prophecy this is what's coming therefore this is how you ought to behave now and it gives a very accurate representation about what's happening in the churches in that day and it's also in the genre of epistle a letter of instruction and we say this because it identifies itself as this, particularly chapters 1 through 3. What it meant to the original reader is what it should mean to us. Now, um, and we'll talk about this in a minute. The preterist view of Revelation, which says it's already all happened, it absolutely destroys its effectiveness, it destroys its purpose. You, you, the, the book of Revelation is already irrelevant to the preterist, the one that says that this has already all happened. And then the structure, I gave you a couple of different ways to structure it. It's actually very easy to outline. Uh, you could do it two different ways, or many more, but these are two that I gave you. Uh, chapter 1, the glories of Christ. Chapters two, 2 and 3, the churches of Christ. And then 4 through 22, the plans of Christ. And those are all focused, of course, on Christ as the main character. Or you could do uh, the things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be. And that's taken directly from uh, what the text actually says. These are the things you've seen. Uh, John sees a vision of Jesus Christ, the things which are happening right now in the churches, um, and the things which are, or which shall be, rather. And that's the, from chapter 4 on. What's the purpose? Again, this really focuses focuses us, rather, on The genre of prophecy, it's a revelation given from Jesus Christ to encourage believers to faithfulness and rebuke them concerning sin. You have commendation and condemnation um, the same as the book of Hebrews all the way through Jude. You have both. A revelation given from Jesus Christ to encourage believers to faithfulness and to rebuke them concerning sin. I would add to that also that it is a tremendous warning to the unbeliever. Um, You know, if you're witnessing to someone and they're at least interested enough in the gospel to read part of the Bible, uh, don't be afraid to say, read the book of Revelation. You know, read the end. Read uh, what's coming and let the word of God uh, do its work. Uh, Anytime you can get an unbeliever to read the Bible, you're winning that battle because they don't know it but you're throwing a curveball at them that you're throwing at them a spirit empowered holy book that promises to not return void so um, rather than you arguing about these things with them just ask them would you you be willing to read this write down 10 questions and then we'll talk about it I think that's a great way to share the gospel and many many people have come to faith in Christ reading the book of Revelation we have uh, good friends um, that were as adults uh, they were unsaved and some Somehow or another they got a hold of the Left Behind series. And they started reading that. And it led them to read the book of Revelation. And by reading the book of Revelation they came to faith in Christ. And, and now they're very, very faithful serving in their church. And um, But they would say the book of Revelation led them to Christ. And they saw the glory of Christ and they were terrified by the judgment of Christ. So that's the purpose. Let's do a couple of interpretive issues. And we, we've done a few already when we've looked at uh, eschatology. Interpretive approaches. We did this in in our theology section already, but I just want to do a brief review. The preterist view. And until recently, I sort of thought that the preterist view was primarily dead. It's really not. It's actually making a huge comeback um, with with people who are, are fully into this. And I haven't met a preterist yet that I think is a nice person. They they tend to be really really dogmatic and really really uh, kind of full in themselves, um, and that's just that's just been my observation. But full preterism says that all the events in the Book of Revelation were fulfilled in seventy A.D. Who remembers what happened in seventy A.D.? Destruction, destruction of Jerusalem. That's the biggie. That we're not uh, in the eternal state. We're not in the new heavens, not the new earth, etc. Uh, it, it denies. The second coming of Christ. Now, um, I have been interacting with a full preterist online and, and he says, no, we don't deny the second coming of Christ. He came in 70 AD. Just nobody can see him. And his view is, and I think this is the view of many preterists, that Christ's incarnation was temporary until he ascended into heaven and he is now on earth invisibly that's heresy he must remain a man he went to heaven as a man so that we're assured that he remains um, as a man and so they would say everything has already been fulfilled that we're, we're in the kingdom now I, I don't know how you support that I, I really don't but the, those who are brothers are very very dogmatic about it Most, though, who hold that the events of Revelation were uh, fulfilled already in 70 AD, most... Recognize that full preterism is heresy. And so they would be what we would call partial preterists that most things were fulfilled in 70 AD. Um, but they would say that Revelation 20 through 22 is still future. Or there's another variation that says that in Revelation 21 the New Jerusalem is actually speaking of the church. And they say that because the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. They say, well, see, that's the bride of Christ. That's a really, really thin argument because um, Revelation 21 goes on to give specific measurements and descriptions and now you have to get really allegorical. Well, the diamonds mean the pastors of the church and the walls mean people who don't want to get into the church and you start to get really, really allegorical and it, it just doesn't work anymore. Now, the Preterist view falls apart pretty hard. Remember I told you earlier that Revelation can be dated with 99.9% certainty between 90 and 95 A.D. And all the arguments are in that range. For full preterism to work, it has to have been written between 64 A.D., uh, after 64, but before 70. Why is that? Nero came to power at about 64 A.D., and, and he is seen as the Antichrist by preterists, and it had to be before 70 A.D., because uh, they would say that this is really prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. If you read Revelation, it is clearly worldwide. It is not limited to one location. Now, in the theology portion, we dismantle preterism. If you want to get more information, go back to that particular lecture. So there's the preterist view. Then there's the historicist view, which is, which is an interesting view. It's a symbolic representation of the course of history from the apostles to today that Revelation is representative of church history. I've heard some preach the book of Revelation as both futurists, which we'll talk about in a minute, and historicists, that it's both. Um... But the problem is that allows for too wide a variation in interpretation. There, there isn't a set of hermeneutics that tells you how to interpret it that way. It's a very, very popular view since the Reformation. And why do you think that is? The guys like Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, Wesley, Edwards, Whitfield, Finney, Spurgeon, even, um, they held this view. Why? Because who was the Antichrist of the day for most of those men? It was the Pope. And so for them, the Pope being Antichrist made this fit into church history. So that was sort of a case of of reading the newspaper or reading the scrolls or whatever they had um, and and pushing that back into the book. That's why it was so popular. The the beasts of Revelation 13, the Pope, the papacy, all the bishops, um, they saw that as very, very uh, clear um, in, in their view. Then there's the idealist interpretation. It's an allegorical view that says that this, the book of Revelation gives spiritual lessons to the reader. It does give spiritual lessons. The whole Bible does this. But Revelation is pretty specific to just be a, a giant parable. You know, when you, when you say that... Uh, the, the, the measurements on the city of New Jerusalem mean this uh, the diamonds mean this the sapphires mean this once you start doing that essentially you're just making things up and, and you don't ever just say something equals something else and this is symbolic without having a purpose and the reason for it. it leads to very arbitrary interpretations. so if you if you read idealist commentaries they all disagree with each other at a massive level because they're all using different systems then you have the futurist view this is the view that says you interpret the book the same way you do in the other book of the Bible it's it's a literal and plain interpretation obvious symbols still represent real events um, and so what are some obvious symbols in the book of Revelation can anybody think of any obvious symbols 666 six, six. 666 that that's a symbol we're not told what it means H- how about uh, the churches as lampstands are they actually lampstands no that's a symbol and in fact we're we're told the churches are the lampstands so There are symbols there. Remember this. Symbols always represent something. If we're not told what it is, it still represents something real. To say something is symbolic doesn't mean that it's not a real thing. It just means that there's a different symbol for it. And I think the the, the futurist view is the best view to take because it is the only one consistent with the hermeneutics, the Bible study method you use for the rest of the Bible. That's why it's consistent. Now, You know when uh, somebody that you agree with on almost everything does something really stupid and then you're associated with them? And yeah, it feels kind of weird. Dispensationalists have been notoriously known for being sensationalists. And what has been, I think, the biggest mistake by futurists is applying current events to the book of Revelation. And it, there's just endless ways to do that. Um, when the when the Soviet Union was still in existence, that was the big one. I mean, everybody was clear that that they're in the Book of Revelation. Then when the the Union broke up, oh, that made it a little bit hard. Now it's China. Well, now it might be Russia, and that that's not a right way to interpret Scripture. There is no other book of the Bible that we put uh, a, a a news website up next to our Bibles to help us interpret the Bible. So I think that's the biggest mistake and, and the classic ones are the, the guys with TV shows that look like a news show and they've got pictures of some riot or something happening and then they start reading from scripture that this is what this is actually talking about. Don't believe it. Um, for every person making those interpretations, there's a different interpretation. So it's very exciting. I mean, it's, I, I don't deny that. It's fun. You know, it's, it's like... Um, you know we, you see a car accident and you try not to look, but it 's kind of it 's kind of exciting um, and it certainly sells but that 's the biggest mistake. There are variations to the futurist view we 've talked about these already, and that is the um, there is the pre-tribulational rapture view, the mid-tribulational rapture, and the post-tribulational rapture. Those are, those are minor variations that have to do with whether you believe that uh, uh, Christians will go through the wrath of God or not and we withhold to a pre-tribulational rapture. We've spent time on that. And then there is the issue of the millennium. Is it a literal thousand years after this present age. That is the view of most premillennialists. Um, premillennialism meaning a belief that Christ returns and then the reign of Christ begins. Is it symbolic? of the final period of this present age post-millennialists would say that uh, the the, the final time uh, the final period and there's no way to know when that started or if it started that that's what the actual millennium is that Christ is reigning uh, because the gospel is going forth and that eventually we're going to Christianize the world I I haven't seen that going real well so far Um, so if I was post-millennial I would at least say it hasn't started yet or is it symbolic of all of this present age that it's it is just a symbol. It is not um, an actual reigning of Christ uh, on this earth. Um, that would be the a millennial view that there is no actual millennium. That uh, that this is kind of the kingdom, and then Christ is going to return, and everything happens all at once. All the resurrections, all the all the judgments, it all boom, 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 boom happens, and then Christ reigns on new heavens and new earth, and it, we kind of go from one era to the next instantaneously. I'm pretty convinced about the literal thousand years after this present age for um, several reasons. The the first one is, and I'll give you two big ones, I guess. Uh, The first reason I'm convinced is that Revelation 20 takes pains, I believe, six times to say 1,000 years. Now, those who are of other persuasions would say, well, see, that's your only evidence of a millennial kingdom. That's, that is such a faulty argument. I can't, even, I can't even believe that people say that out loud. Um, so that's why in a few weeks we're starting our millennium series. And I'm going to show you hundreds of places in Scripture that show a millennial kingdom. That's just the only place that gives the length. That doesn't mean it's the only place it's spoken of. But the first reason I believe in a literal thousand years is because it says it six times. When the thousand years are up, thousand years are up, thousand years are up. Now, does that mean it it might be 998 or it might be 1002 I'm okay with that, because in the, in the scriptures, sometimes long periods of time are slightly rounded. When the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, killed 185,000 uh, uh, enemy soldiers in the Old Testament, was it precisely 185,000? It was close. And, and I'm okay with that. There's no rule that says you can't round up. So... But to say that it's just an age or it's symbolic, I'm not willing to do that. Second reason that I I think it's a thousand years literally... Uh, Dr. Robert Thomas, if you really want to understand the Book of Revelation, get his two-volume commentary. It's, they're both about three inches thick, so you know, be warned in advance that it's not easy reading. Um, Dr. Thomas was—he was like born in a university or something. He—he—he he, he is a genius. He's—I think he's gone home to be with the Lord, hasn't he? Yeah, he's probably instructing Paul right now. Like he is that—he was that smart. Um, taught himself Greek before he started seminary, that kind of a guy. But he makes a long detailed, uh, he's a master exegete, a long detailed case that the numbers in the book of Revelation are always literal. You, because if you're going to say, well, the thousand years is symbolic, then you have to say, well, 1,260 days, which is mentioned several times, is symbolic. 24 elders, that may become be the closest to being symbolic. We've said that that is representative of the church. That doesn't mean there aren't 24 thrones and 24 elders, though, listed in Revelation 4. Uh, the three and a half years listed, all of the numbers um, Listed in Revelation, he makes an outstanding case that, that really the burden of proof is on the one who says the thousand years are symbolic because every other number is literal. So that, that's a really, really tough case to, to get over. And so I would take it as a thousand years. Now, does it matter in the grand scheme of things? I, I think it does. To a certain degree, because I, I think it's unethical, spiritually it's it's unwise. It is um, I almost call it uh, dishonest in a way to interpret the Book of Revelation differently than you would any other book to fit a theological system. Um, I, I know this isn't a hermeneutic, but I've always wanted to do this. I, I would love to see a brand new believer who's never opened a Bible in his life read the book of Revelation. Then ask him the question, how long is Christ going to reign? And it, well, a thousand years. Why? Because that's what it says. I have a hard time believing that God is going to hide that from the smartest people on earth um, and that, that only a few people have really, really figured it out. Or could I put it this way? If something in the Bible doesn't make sense until a theologian with 18 letters after his name explains it to you, I would be suspicious of that. Not that we don't have great use for theologians with 18 letters after their name. Of course we do. But if you don't believe it until somebody explains it to you and they cannot um, show you the steps that they got to to arrive at that point, I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. It's an academic argument that's meant to publish papers and to, to gain notoriety and gain attention. So... Uh, unlike academics my goal as a preacher is to never one time preach anything original I never want to be original I want to preach things that we've known to be true for 2,000 years so uh, the book of Revelation what what is the city of Babylon Ah, there's a few different things what is the beast that is Antichrist what's he going to look like I don't know but you have all the information you need and you will receive a blessing by reading it through. I have time for just a couple questions. I pretty much told you everything I know about the book, but you can quiz me if you want. Oh, I convinced you that I've already told you everything I know. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, Leon. Well, last time we talked about the John, it's, it's about being the those written after Revelation. Uh, if I said that, that was a that was a, a miss. I misspoke because I've never thought that. Oh. So yeah, I would say they had to be written shortly before, um, especially since he says he's about to visit or he's going to visit. He can't do that from the island of Patmos, so that have to be before. So that's. I think what I was talking about was that uh, that at the end of his life, there's a pretty good. Uh, uh, Christian tradition that he was so decrepit that he was carried into the church in Ephesus and, and wasn't able to do much except to say, you know, my children love one another. So that's a, that's a pretty strong tradition. I'm willing to believe it because uh, I think that would uh, personify John. Yeah, good question. I missed I was the room. I, I missed the part about Babylon can you do that in 25 words or less 25 words or less Babylon in the book of Revelation is symbolic of all things evil it's evil world system It's it has a dual role um, it's evil world religious system and it's evil world uh, just economic and worldly uh, philosophy system so um, Babylon's always never gotten a good rap all the way through like you don't no, of any Christians naming their kid Babylon right yeah with the, with the twins uh, Goliath and Judas uh, also so alright well why don't we pray and we'll you have a little bit of time here before worship time together thank you Father for this grand and glorious book which brings us to the close of our Bible here in in BTI and uh, Lord we thank you for the crescendo and the high note that the Bible ends on with this glorious plea and call to come to faith. That the Spirit of God calls to come to faith. The Bride of Christ calls to come to faith. Those who are listening are called to come to faith and and issue the call once they believe. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that, that all of our hearts would be thrilled with what is yet to come. That all of the vindication psalms that promise that the Lord will vindicate, the Lord will judge, that all of them will come to pass. And that there will be a day when we walk on an earth ruled by the King of all the kings. What a glorious day that will be. May we live our lives in light of that coming truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.